Let's give it up for those guys. So what did you learn at church today? The Chucky the Cheese Mouse is on our security team. Nate, give it up for Nate. Yeah, that's right. And I, I'm watching that. I'm envisioning 20 years from now, there's some gal giving testimony of money she saved for a Sean Mendez concert. That's, for those of you who don't know who Sean Cassidy was, Sean Mendez was Sean Cassidy, what, 50 years ago, probably? 40 years ago? Um, I don't know, is he dead now or something? I don't know. Is he, <laughs> he might be, but uh, hopefully not. Uh, I just joked about someone being dead, but anyhow, I just shortened my uh, funeral procession by half right there by that thing. Um, but uh, so cool. Can you remember your first paycheck? You, remember, listen, you, you could just go around the room today and, and you get these crazy stories. I remember when my cousin Dwayne in 1968, I helped him. I'm sure I was a big help. Uh, moved lumber. Set of, he gave me $5 to help him move some lumber that we were tearing down some barns on our property. And I just remember, I will never need money again. I mean, I am so rich. I will never need money again. And I just remember what that did, that feeling of money, $5. You know, if I was going to go buy comic books, and back then they were 12 cents, 12 cents. And I was going to do that. My first job was, was mowing cemetery lawns in churches. So all my life, I've been working with dead people in churches. That's all, that's all I've been doing all my life. But I just, I remember, here's what I remember. It was very similar to preaching because you had to mow it first with the riding mower and then you had to mow it with the push mower in between the tombstones and then you had to go over the whole thing with the trimmer. And then when you got done with that, you started it again and it was never ending. It's just like preaching. You preach, you recover, you prepare, you preach, you do it again. It just comes back. It's amazing. And you may have found that there's something that happened in you. Remember, I used to make about $200 every two weeks for doing that. And you may have found that there's something that happened to you when you got your first dollar, when you got your first paycheck. You may not have known it, but the day you received your first dollar, your life slash your soul changed. It did. There's something that shifted in you that you may have not noticed, but it did. And two professors of social and psychological science at the University of Exeter, Stephen Lee and Paul Webley, came up with a discovery about money that explains why your life changed, your soul potentially changed the day you received your first dollar. And here it is. They found that, yes, for, for thousands of years, humanity has realized that money is a tool. It's a practical, pragmatic tool. We use it to buy things that we can live on, houses, food, for our, in our case, transportation, etc. Money is a powerful tool to live life, and that's good. And so humanity's known that for thousands of years, that money is a tool. What they discovered that was a new discovery because it was neurologically based is that money is not just a tool, money is a drug. You see, if it was just a tool, then when we had enough to live on, we would no longer want more of it. And they started asking the question, why is it that people will do emotional, relational, spiritual damage to their life 
to get more of what they already have enough of. Why do we do that? Why do we hurt ourselves? Many of you know this. It has been clearly defined many times that in the 21st century in America, you do need about $70,000 a year to be happy. People say money doesn't make you happy. Have you ever had money? Heck yes, it makes you happy. People who say that have never had any or have had too much. Yes, it makes you happy. Money can make you happy. It can give joy, but it can be happiness. And in America, in the 21st century, to really be happy in a way that is as minimally challenging as possible, you need about $70,000 a year. But more than that won't make you happier. It's also been discovered that more than $70,000 a year actually does not make you happier. In some cases, it makes your life more complicated. There's more to manage. There's more to ensure. What do you get the man for Christmas who has everything? A, a, a security alarm, right? Because the more you have, the more you have to worry about. And so what they found, what Lee and Webley found is that money is a drug because why? We will go to no end to get more of it even when we have plenty of it. We have plenty of it. There are many people I'm speaking to right now that make way more than $70,000 a year collectively, but, but maybe you're not happy. It's because, just like a drug, if you depend upon this for your worth and your happiness totally, the more you have, just like a drug, the more you want, the more you need. And so that's why, you know, people so often say, why is it that messages on generosity, which is clearly shown to make people happy, some people resent? It's because you still have a belief in your soul, a core conviction that money can make you happy if you just have more. If you just have more, you'll be happy. And that is a sign that money is a drug. Because that means that, that you get it so that you can get, just like a drug, another hit. Another sense of the feeling that comes when you get $5 and you think, I am rich beyond my wildest dreams. And so the day that you got your first dollar, that's the day your life changed. You were on a track that money would either be a tool, and not just a tool to live on, but a spiritual growth tool, by the way. I mentioned this last week. Two spiritual growth tools in your life are the Bible and, and your wallet. That, there's, there, those two right there. You can grow like crazy on those two. The reason that God enacted that was this reason. It's because the reason God calls us not to give, everybody gives. God calls us to be generous is because of this reason, that money is a drug. Just giving a little bit here and there to the Salvation Army bucket as you go into Walmart during Christmas is not going to make you happy. It's not going to free you from the drug-addled effects of money. It's not going to do that. What's going to make you do that, because the reason is you can give and not be generous, but you cannot be generous without giving. You cannot. To be a person that, that at your funeral, people look back and go, wow, she was generous. She was generous to the work of God in the world. She was generous to people. She was a rich person. It's because you can give and not be generous, but you can't be generous without being a person who put your faith in where it matters most in America, and what is it? Money is our measuring stick of self-worth. We're going to pray for the implications of 9-11 at the end today. 
And one of the things that I think it's interesting in light of this series that we happen to be doing this during the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is that our enemies knew exactly where to hit us, didn't they? In our financial center. They didn't, they didn't plow into church buildings. They plowed into our financial center. Why? In America, in God we trust, but all others pay cash. In America, the, the measuring stick of your worth is how much money you have. And God knew that, and so he instituted a system called the tithe. It means tenth. Last week we looked at this Leviticus 27.30 where it's first introduced. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and is holy to the Lord. Now God needed their tithe to exist, right? No! God is a non-contingent first cause being who's outside any need. Why did God do that? It's because he knew that any asset would be something that we would be tempted to become addicted to as our source of worth and happiness and joy and life. And that whatever we sought to give us a hit of self-worth would become our God. And so God institutes this system that when you look at in America about one and a half to two and a half percent, depending on what, what study you read, is, is considered generous in America. And God comes along when you become a, a student of the Bible and he says, a tithe, a tenth? Remember last week I said there were actually three tithes. There was the tithe that was given to the priests and Levites. That was what we would call the ministry to, to get the ministry of the church funded. Uh, there was the tithe to the sacred celebrations, the seven feasts that Israel had annually so that they would just party and, and tell the nations our God is, is the one true God. And then there was the tithe that was once every three years, that for the next three years they gave to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, et cetera, to the marginalized. When you put it together, it actually wasn't 10%, it was 23%, about 23%. And why did God do that? Why did God say, I want Israel to be known for two things, monotheism and intentionally reducing their wealth? Like no other, no other, no other nation did that. Intentionally reducing their wealth, why? Because God knew that financial resources are not just a tool, but a drug, a drug. There's a guy by the name of Leon Fessinger that I mentioned last week who talks about social comparison theory. Remember I mentioned last week that as Americans, we tend to compare ourselves morally to people below us, axe murderers and kidnappers. So when you get pulled over, for a speeding, and you know you've been a good girl or a good boy, where your mind goes to social comparison theory. Don't you have axe murderers to be worrying about here, copper? Huh? Why are you, why are you giving this upstanding moral citizen a ticket? That's what we tend to do. Financially, we tend to compare ourselves to people above us on the ladder. So in America, you're always looking to people who have more than you do to get there. That's what we do. It's just indigenous to the way we think. And he said this, that I think's insight into the tithe system. Upward financial comparisons generate increasing amounts of more. I need more. That's the addiction. And decreasing amounts of compassion. That's what it does. God knew that. He didn't want his people to be known for just being people who dump a buck into the Salvation Army bucket at Christmas. No, no, no. Anybody can do that. He wanted people who loved and trusted him so much that people would look at his people and say, which we are the new Israel, and say, whoa, they're not just givers. They're generous. 
The world is better because they exist. I love it. You ever see that bumper sticker? Years ago, there used to be a bumper sticker. Tithe if you love Jesus. Anybody can honk. Anybody can honk. In other words, the way you really show, I love Jesus, yes, I do. I love Jesus, how about you? Is you put into play the very thing that as an American can give you esteem and give you worth and give you value in place of God. There's a, a, a psychologist who did a study on faith and belief, and you've heard me say this before. There are three levels of belief. One is public, the next is private, and the next is core. A public conviction is when I believe something that I want you to think I believe. This is what politicians barter in. They want you to think they believe certain things, and they'll say it even though they may not believe it privately themselves. A private conviction is what you want to believe. Like I, I, I want to believe tithing is a... I, I, I want to believe that. But, but you're, if we looked at your checking account, you, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You actually don't believe that. You want to believe it, but you don't. A core conviction is when you really believe it. The way you live, you don't have to talk about it. The way you live says they really believe it. What was the thing that allowed Israel to really live this way? It is said over and over again in Scripture. Psalm 24 summarizes it as much as here it is, here it is, here it is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is what allowed them to take this tithing, woo, radical. No other nation was asked to do this kind of stuff and, and be generous. It's because they, over and over again, were told, it's not yours anyway. You're a steward. You're not an owner. And when you, when you have that as a core conviction and everything in your life begins to flow toward this one purpose, seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. When you, when you use everything in my life is to go toward this purpose because it's God's anyway, then there's no problem for me to hear the, the tithe belongs to the Lord. That's my expression. Not a legalistic box to check. No, not a legalistic box to check that, oh, I did the tithe, now I can do whatever I want. But your whole life is going toward that end. And now this is this, this baseline of generosity that no matter what else you do, you know, I have been generous as a person. Now, last week I mentioned that there are a couple questions that come up with this. Remember last week, questions that come up with this are usually the first question is, okay, you convinced me. Should I tithe off my net income or my gross income? I don't know. I don't know. You want a net blessing or you want a gross blessing? It's up to you. All right. Secondly, should I tithe? This is the most qu- frequent question I've been asked by people who are convicted of this. Should I tithe if my spouse is against it? And I, I know you can disagree with me. You can be wrong. <laughs> no, I don't think you should. I don't think God means this to be some legalistic box we check and it divides our family. I really don't. Here's another question that we get. Typically, we get this question. What happens when I tithe? What can I expect to happen? And that's a, that's a natural question. Because many of us know this principle has been abused. It has been abused by preachers who just automatically say there's going to be this immediate material byproduct of your faith. When what we know from Scripture and experience is God's blessings are not always material, and they're very seldom immediate. Very seldom. And so what happens when you tithe? Remember these words from Malachi? 
and test me in this, the Lord all says, return to me and I will return to you. But you ask, how do we come back to you? In other words, how do we put our, our faith in you into real practice? He said, well, stop robbing me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In these tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, resources. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I'll not throw open the windows, the floodgates of heaven, and pour out so much blessing that there'll be not enough room for, to store it. And he says, I'll, I'll, I'll intervene in your life in such a way that you'll begin to see movements of mine because you chose to put me in charge, not you in charge. Now, again, the blessing, this, this right here is a statement of generally speaking, this is how generosity within the kingdom, the, the reign of God works. It just, you begin to see the movement of God. That's why the two things that will destroy atheism in your life are the scriptures and your wallet. Because once you start saying, I've gone beyond honking about Jesus to actually putting the thing that can replace Jesus into play, now you're getting somewhere in the premise of this series, you have, you have created a tipping point in your faith journey because you've gone beyond tipping God to the tithing reality. That, it's, it's just a tipping point in your journey. The second question today that I want you to know about is people ask this question, should my tithe go to my local church or to other not-for-profits? And for, for I know we preachers love to say you owe it to the church first. Scripturally, we can't really say that. We can't. Can't say that. Now, I know there are passages like Malachi that says bring it into the storehouse, and that was symbolic of God's house. I know that. But, but even then, there, there are differences in what we're doing uh, even in the American church, especially today. So I hear, I'll just tell you this, Sherry and I tithe to our local church and then we give an offering to, I mentioned this last week, Lydia's mission and we give regularly to Bog and we give regularly to ACE in Jamaica and we give regularly to, uh, to FCA and to AIA. Uh, we give to, well, we look for organizations to invest in. So we do. Why? It's because we don't want we don't want to just see with, with a preacher. I'm not even sure giving back to your church is counts anyway. I'm like the God will get to heaven and say, you know all that money you gave to Southbrook? It didn't count. Like you, you know, it didn't count. Yeah, that may be the case. I don't know. But we also want to make sure that we're spreading God's blessing to us in a, in a lot of different ways. Here's here's the wisdom of this though. You say, wait a minute, I could just do more with that myself. When you give to God's church, and when you give to mission organizations, two things happen. It takes your ego out of it. You don't get credit. You don't get credit. People are being blessed, and they're not going, oh my gosh, Jill Jones is the best person we've ever known. That doesn't happen. And number two, you get to see the accumulative effect. So much happens when we, in the words of the New Testament, bring our generosity and lay it at the apostles' feet. When we do that, God does things collectively that we could never do on our own. Should you do it to the church? I know Sherry and I have always believed in that, but that's not, that's not necessarily what we're required to do. The day you received your first dollar, your life, your soul changed. How's it changing today? Because I don't know about you, I was taught to tithe, and then it really kicked in when I got into middle school and I learned a lesson about it. But it was easier when I was making five bucks. 
I make more than five bucks now. And I can do the math. Holy cow, that's a lot of money. You know? That's a lot. It's harder. What's happening to your soul? Do you show by your life that money is not just a, 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 a physical tool to pay bills, but it's a spiritual tool? It's transforming you? You're using money to change your soul? Or is it still a drug? There's a church I follow regularly. I followed it for years, the Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in San Francisco. And a few years ago, they came up with the idea to give a, a tithe challenge. And they said, begin tithing and do that for the next 90 days if you are not in some way blessed. Because this series is about those of you who are doing this, just, just feeling the Holy Spirit say to you, you go, girl, you're doing this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. You just keep going, even though sometimes you go, what am I doing? And so they said, if you're not, like a lot of people sitting here, blessed in that 90 days, they said, we will give you a complete refund of your tithe after 90 days. Completely refund it. And I, I want to give that same, same offer to you today. You start tithing. Get your push pay app out right now or download it onto your phone or go out to the information counter and, and tithe. And do that for 90 days. And if at the end of that 90 days, you are not blessed. God's blessings are not always material and they're not always immediate. But if you don't say, oh my gosh, I've gotten richer in relationship. I've gotten richer in this and that. If you're not blessed, then you will give you the information. You contact the Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in San Francisco and they'll <laughs> refund your money. Now, we did this a few years ago here, and, and there are many people who took us on the challenge, and they said, you know what? We had one person who asked for a refund. Everybody else said, I don't know, I can't explain it. God's blessings are not always material, and they're not always immediate. Usually they're relational and spiritual. Usually they're eternal. But my life has been blessed. There's a proverb that says, Proverbs, Proverbs, 11.4 says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Really cool thing about money is if once it becomes a tool, it actually builds righteousness in your soul. It's amazing to take that which can, can as the New Testament says, pierce people with many grieves, the love of money. Like, like, like people ruin their life. You ever see those celebrities who, they go to prison for trying to, get 500,000 more dollars when they already have 50 million? What, 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 what? And when you take that thing and you start building righteousness in your soul, now we're getting someplace. Well, a couple years ago, a number of years ago, a couple years after 9-11, I, I was speaking at a conference where I was speaking before David Beamer. David Beamer, the father of Todd Beamer. What was Todd Beamer famously known for? Saying, Flight 93, let's roll. And his story is pretty well documented. His, his wife, Lisa, wrote a book that I recommend about her journey. And I'll never forget what Mr. Beamer said. He said, Todd was very organized. He had everything in his day timer. He knew exactly when he and Lisa were coming in on the, their flight from Italy on September 10th. 
He had the exact time of his flight to San Francisco written in his day timer for September 11th. That's the one he was on. He had written in his day timer the exact time he would be taking the red eye from San Francisco so that he'd have breakfast with his kids on September 12th. What he didn't have in his day timer on September 11th was 10 a.m. Meet God. But he was ready. As has been famously documented, Todd Beamer was a man who was devoted to Christ and he was ready for that appointment. And one of the things about this matter is not just did you fund kingdom things. The, the real question is, is one day will you be ready? That what you were given you were called to be a steward. And how you managed your assets at the end of the day is really all that matters. I won't be compared to you, you won't be compared to me. But there's an appointment in the future out there where you're gonna meet God and he's gonna look at you and Jesus said he's gonna say, hopefully, well done, good and faithful steward. You've been faithful with a few things? I'm gonna put you in charge of many things enter into your, ha- your, your master's happiness. And at the end of the day, the reason God was very specific about not just being a giver, but being a generous person is because he wants you to hear those words someday. Well done. Well done. Faithful steward. I want us to close today in light of yesterday's anniversary by praying for a lot of things. Big day. There are people near us and in our country who are grieving deeply today. Children who have never met their father who was taken. I read yesterday that Rutgers University lost 37 alumni on November 11th, or September 11th, 2001. Stunning. There's so much going on. It, let's pray right now. And let's pray that this prayer is the prayer that heaven is tipped to uh, just make some movement happen. Father, we thank you for the story of Todd Beamer and so many others who courageously gave their lives so that others might live. And today as a church, we want to close by First of all, praying for the families who are reliving the grief of that fateful day. You say you are close to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. They certainly qualify. And we pray that because of our prayer, collectively, its power emanates light and comfort from heaven into their darkness. We pray for America. It's obvious the contrast of the unity then and the division now. We pray that we experience the one who can truly bond us and that is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who is so gracious. We pray for a revival in this country of coming back, return to me, says the Lord. We pray. 
We pray today for so many grieving who lost loved ones in Iraq and Afghanistan. We realize the implications of that fateful day were too numerous to count, but they count in lives. And the scores of family, not just around the country, but in our city who are grieving today, we pray. We pray that they are emboldened today. We pray that they're emboldened today. Our country still has the greatest ideals that the world has ever known for a nation. And we pray that their sacrifice is lived through us. We today have the freedom to gather, the freedom to assemble. It's such a privilege. I don't understand why some people don't take advantage of it. But especially on this day, when so many have paid the ultimate price that we could just be here, that we could be doing something that in around the world people will be killed for, worship our God. Thank you. And for them we pray. Thank you for a, an amazingly generous church. Our last year and a half has been our most generous in our history. And we celebrate that with this series. There are so many here today that I pray they feel your affirmation. There are students who are tithers. It's amazing. There are people on fixed incomes who are tithing because they know you're bigger than their budget. And I pray they feel your affirmation and they anticipate the great well done someday. We thank you. We pray that the Browns beat the Chiefs this afternoon. <laughs> no, we thank you for our country. We thank you for our church and our families and our community. And uh, we ask all this in the name of Christ. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. See you next week for part three.